this a game or is it real? What's the difference? Since you rotten booker, you're gonna be sorry. Maybe I'll rip your pages out one by one. Maybe I'll put you in the goddamn furnace. Your brain get hypnotized like a little bitch, huh? Oh, Shadow Lord, I'm ready, Shadow Lord. Come over here, come over here. Kiss Shadow Lord. Now pull your head out of your goddamn ass and start fucking helping us. So I've been playing that near game that so many people have had so many great things to say about it, and. Smart people. I'm here to things. say that all those people are wrong yeah. as wrong can be. Uh, what about people who said it was good? Those people are right. Those people are as right as right can be. It is... Uh, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> this year's been interesting for games. It's been very interesting thus far already. And that I feel like this year has had a lot of games that have come out which are I cannot play Gradius when I talk about a video game. Which are that <laughs> was a mistake on what I was doing. A lot of games let alone the hardest Gradius. Yeah. The hardest version right. of the hardest Gradius. Right. Right. Uh a lot of games come out this year which are sort of uh what's the word there? An anthology? Like I don't know what the adjective is for the word anthology. Whatever part of an anthology, I used to mean? What's that? Like, games that are part of an anthology? Games that combine a lot of, of components and elements and design choices and motifs and feelings from other games. Derivative? No. I don't know the word. Like, Bayonetta. There's a lot of other games in Bayonetta. And that culminates into something greater than the sum of its parts. Interesting. What games do you think are in Bayonetta? A lot of Capcom games. Like, uh, like I saw a lot of Forgotten Worlds... Devil May Cry, obviously. Um, I don't know. So not, it, necess not necessarily me like mechanistically, but no, not things I could point to specifically. But I feel like a lot of games, or not a lot, but I feel like a, a good handful of games have come out this year that are obviously inspired by, like, obviously inspired by specific things from other games that I recognize, hmm. uh, like Bayonetta sort of a culmination of the quirky, frantic Japanese action style. A game like Darksiders is like the ultimate refinement of the Zelda formula for this generation. Deadly Premonition is like a shrine to the PlayStation era of video gaming and all of the stilted and awkward and limited things that came with those games. Mm -hmm. uh, and I feel like Near is sort of in the same vein. I cannot believe you are playing this game. <laughs> Who starts up this game? <laughs> San Andreas. Five years on the East Coast. It was time to go home. Welcome to Los Santos Airport. What's up? Carl is sweet. What's up, sweet? What you want? This mama. She's dead. Yeah. 
You gotta do something. <laughs> Why does my guy look like I don't that? know. That's the funniest thing <laughs> I've ever seen. <laughs> He looks like he's a nucleus. <laughs> I mean, that's why I did that. That's really funny. <laughs> I feel like uh, I feel like near is the your that's invert look was on. Really? Yeah. That's really strange. Especially after you made out such a stink about it. We both did, but it's that's just weird. weird. I wonder if I just got used to it in this game. God, man, what a derailment. Yeah. GTA is just pretty interesting. It really is. Isn't. You know why? Because it doesn't look it doesn't look like shit. No, it looks pretty good. Your guy runs pretty slow though. Yeah. No, it doesn't look like shit oh, at all. There he is. Wow, I'm impressed. Because usually you think of Grand Theft Auto, I think everyone thinks of three. Yeah. Which is like a muddy nightmare. It was a muddy nightmare. So Nier is. Uh, I was gonna say is. I feel like Nier is a product of. Of someone or or people who were raised or played a lot of like sprawling epic RPGs from the eight and sixteen bit eras, but games that evoke like a wide scope, but because of the limitation of their hardware, are stunted in a lot of ways. To where like you use the word austere, mm -hmm. which I think is apt for this game, where you have these amazing locations uh, that are both amazing because of their actual design and because of the artistic choices that Kavya made in how to color and light these zones. Right. And, like, the, it gives the sense that this world is large and just full of people and things. But in the actual game, they're, they have a weird isolation to them. Like, the towns in the game all have... I would say roughly a realistic population density. But when you go into the sort of, I wouldn't say open world, but when you go into the wilderness parts of the game and the plains and stuff, you don't really ever see anybody. Like, you don't see people traveling from town to town. Right. You don't get a sense that the world exists other than in the specific confines of these cities. So it's that weird sensation of, like, I don't know. I, I guess I, I don't know how to explain it. It's like... You well, it's kind of... I mean, it's not really like this, but in a way... Well, I said that it, the, the entire game, the aesthetic of the game, reminds me of Shadow of the Colossus. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, Shadow of the Colossus... Obviously, that world was empty. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it was... <clears throat> that doesn't mean that a lot of attention wasn't paid to that world. Uh, do no. you think Nier's like that, wherein the world itself is pretty interesting and creative, but there's just not much to populate it? Because a, a lot of Shadow of the Colossus, I remember exploring a lot of that land knowing that I was never going to find anything, but I just was interested. In, for some reason, I was interested in every little nook that the creators made mm -hmm. because it was sort of unique in its own way. Yeah. You know, much like a real world would be stumbling across like a small creek or yeah as opposed to a game like we'll say oblivion because the setting is is more easily compared a lot of the world of oblivion feels very procedurally generated mm -hmm. like where bethesda just had these like engines and, and pieces of code and they just sort of twiddled knobs and said all right kind of make forested area right. here and and make up some hills and just populate it however you feel like according to this code we've made right Whereas a world like Nier, I feel like every 
surface area in every part of that world someone looked at for at least a few minutes and went, I want it to look this way because of these reasons. It's interesting because we're I like... Guess purposeful would be the word. Yeah. And the way objects in that world are positioned, you can tell that either in their head or in front of them as a piece of art, the developers had like a shot and said, I want the player to see this exactly at some point in the game. Right. And there are moments in that game where you'll come around corners or come over hills or or whatever, and the camera will hit that exact spot and you stop for a second and you're like, wow, that looks really amazing. Yeah. way the colors the color in this game is amazing and I'm actually I'm, I'm writing an article about it because it struck me so much it reminds me a lot of games like the first I don't know if you ever played did you ever play the first uh, Ease game no why yes no did you ever play any of those games no the first Ease game I played uh, a, a long time ago I, I played it and games in the 8-bit era like Zelda like Ease the first ease, like the first Final Fantasy, have a color palette that is roughly like four colors or five colors you could boil down to. Mm -hmm. And they're usually very bright colors because yeah. given the limitations of the hardware, the developers had to be very deliberate about how to define areas like grass, dirt, stone, water, tree, enemy, not enemy, player character. Right. In near, the game is like wrapped in colors that are analogous to each other so it's like when you go when you go to the town in the game called Seafront the entire town is almost essentially gray and blue but it's right. the subtle shades of gray and blue that allow you to you know see buildings and shapes and stuff interesting but the every area of the game will have objects in it that are like intense colors and they pop out at you immediately and it's I don't know it's just it's a weird effect it's so it's not like Schindler's List it's not nearly that pronounced but your eye is drawn to these things and their vibrancy is what is just so amazing to you set against this rather drab dreary muted look that the game has I hadn't really thought about it because I don't have the game but I remember when you were showing me the game and parts mm -hmm. of it uh, yeah, that was that's really apparent now that I think about it. Um, when I, I think about the sea town that you went to, the seaside town that you went to, right? Yeah, it's it's really true that the ocean and it's blue just like pops out at you to a degree that, in retrospect, should have amazed me a little bit more. And maybe it did because it left an impression on, in me about it. The easiest way I can think of is like that seaside town and like your home village and the grassy plains and the desert that I didn't even show you the desert location but they're all sort of three-dimensional icons like they are compressed concepts into a space where that space like represents all potential permutations of that space yeah I understand that like you go to that seaside town you're like this looks like every seaside, seaside town. town I've ever seen ever 
but taken as its own, it's amazing and beautiful in its own right. Right. Because it represents so such a larger concept. Uh, and it helps that the game has an amazing soundtrack. I mean, it's it's up there with some of the best music I've ever heard in a game, like hands down. And they do a really ingenious thing with taking this music and getting a lot of mileage out of it. Where uh, you saw this, but a lot of I don't think a lot of people will will notice it if they play it, if they have even ever played near. Is that uh, like for instance in your home village, there is a song that plays, and for the most part, it's like a, a sort of a, a soft drum beat, or like maybe not even a drum, but like maybe someone drumming on a guitar has that sound, and like a weird sort of chiming uh, loop that plays. However, when you get near a character in the town, she's playing a guitar and singing. So when you're in her vicinity, her singing in guitar gets laid over top the default village music, that makes it a more complete song. Like it's not it's not two music tracks playing. It's basically more of that song being revealed to you. And one, the song is amazing, and two, I like the way that they sort of attribute it to someone in the game world. Like it's sort of like they're stepping outside of their own bounds as a game character, yeah. and they become part of the music, which is typically in in games not generated by. Uh, objects within the game world itself. Right. You know? It's weird. It's like the game is... It, the game is its own soundtrack. Like, the characters are making the music for the game that they exist inside of. Does that make sense? It's weird. It's like yeah. a weird... It's, but even I'm, though, taking well, I mean, it, I'm taking it pretty far, but I just thought that was really interesting. So it's like... it's, I don't know. It's really weird. I, I cannot think of a game that has really done something like that other than maybe... Like, Explosion Man is the only thing I could think of where you yeah. have that, like, layer of music that turns on as soon as you start exploding. No, that is a really good point. Explosion Man has that, does that exact, well, somewhat similar thing. Sure. Explosion Man is more about what's going on as opposed to where you are. Right. You know what but I mean? But it's like another layer of music that's activated right. by something the player does. Right. You know, there's just that, there's the... It's just like they're muting it. Sort of the tracks. cello or the violin strumming. And then when you start exploding, the music kind of kicks into high gear to accompany the frantic action. I don't know. And the artistic choices in the game are amazing. I really just... I get off on that aesthetic of, like, post-post-apocalyptic, where the world, for all intents and purposes, you know, air quotes, ended, or had a cataclysmic event, mm -hmm. and rather than having humanity rebuild to a point comparable to before the event, mm -hmm. they sort of take on this, you know, agrarian farmer lifestyle where they don't really understand the technology that exists in the world still. Right. 
and they're like, I don't understand all these machines. There's machines that are still running, and no one knows how to use them or fix them if they ever break. That sort of fiction is really interesting to me. Like, um, although it's kind of like Fallout 3 is like a really ideal. Technically, Fallout 3 would be a really ideal setting for me for a game. Mm-hmm. Like a bombed out future retro Washington it's just, DC. It's wrapped in mechanics you don't. Well, there's that, but down with. Yeah, <laughs> there's that, but it's also like. I guess the best way to put it is I would much rather read a wiki page for Fallout 3 mm-hmm. in its setting. And I would much rather play Nier. Because Nier leaves a lot more open-ended and unanswered. Sure. Yeah, definitely. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's a lot of secondary information that you sort of infer from what's yeah. presented to you. So I could play through like 40 hours of Nier and have a really deep understanding of the world and its locations and the weird ruins that are left around it. Mm-hmm. And I could sort of posit a what had happened in my head. Sure. But it never would have been revealed to me. Right. Whereas if I spent the same amount of time or maybe a little longer in Fallout 3, uh, everything would have been revealed to me. Yeah, it's all spelled out for you. Yeah. yeah. Which is really interesting because Typically, I like really directed experiences in games. But then I'm also saying I like a really abstract... Yeah. To be know. fair, there's a lot of that. There's a there's a good bit... There's a, there's a fair bit of that in Fallout 3. Of, like... <clears throat> coming across... Uh, you'll, you'll, you can explore areas in the game that have nothing to do with the main story. Are not tied to any side quest, <clears throat> per se. Do not help you achieve any kind of unlock or trophy or achievement. But they have, like, little just self-contained stories about that area. Right. Of, like, something happened here, and we'll give you some clues as to what that is. But it's 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 a it's more detailed than near where you could, <clears throat> you know, go to a corner and see, like, what was probably part of a bridge at one point. Right. <clears throat> and your mind just goes off into a million tangents as to what was here before. Yeah, I love that. And, like, what has transpired since then. I decided what it is is... I don't like co-creating with the develop or with the creator of the game in the game world. Mm-hmm. I don't really like that sort of co-creating, but I really like co-creating in my head, like creating your own context. Right. Essentially, yeah. Um, that's totally separate from the directed experience of the game. Then that would be like the fine line between Fallout and Near, I guess. Yeah, and I mean that's that's kind of why I liked <clears throat> Halo One so much. Halo 3 not so much. Right. Because it was just a little bit more... In Fallout, there is an intention on the developer to say, if you collect all these bits, you'll arrive at this conclusion. Yeah. Whereas in Nier, it's sort of like, I don't know, make it up. I don't care. Yeah. Interject whatever you want into this space. It just looks really neat. Yeah. There's still a story that they want to tell, but there's a whole other story that they just But the setting in which it takes place could probably be anything. Yeah. Really. Right, 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 right. But um, the only other thing I want to talk about with Nier <clears throat> is that the um, the other thing about how it's sort of a, an anthology of game play. 
Switches mechan not mechanics, because you always the buttons always do the same thing. It switches delivery methods, I guess is how you could say it. On a fairly frequent basis, like for instance, there's a quest that is entirely text-based, text-based, and 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 <clears throat> the screen goes black, 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 and there's just white, like serif text scrolling across, across the screen, the screen. Mm -hmm. and you have to read it, and then there are parts where you make choices about what you do. And, like, it's describing it from a third person, as, like, a third person narrative. But what's funny, writing this, like, story part out, the characters in the game world are somehow aware that someone's talking about them. Yeah. And they address the narrator directly. But the narrator never, like, replies back. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's so, so bizarre. bizarre. It's bizarre. And then there is another, uh, there's another portion later in the game where uh, you go underground into this factory area, and the camera goes way up, and the game basically becomes played from an isometric perspective. And you could rotate the camera around, but it is like an old PlayStation 1 game where the camera's like an ambivalent god camera. Yeah. And like you see like the roof, the roof, quote unquote, of the game world is just like black or if you go into a room, it like becomes it transparent like, and you see your character walking around inside the room. And if you come back outside the door into the hallway, like, that part becomes solidified again. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, and it does that for absolutely really no reason other than to be entertaining and interesting. And there's multiple times in the game where stuff will that, like that will happen. Reminds me a lot of Deadly Premonition, and then it's got a lot of pieces of other types of games right. in it. And, but yeah. it's all executed on a level that's it, a lot it's all professional than Deadly <laughs> yeah, Premonition. Yeah. You know? Well, like I said, I think Deadly Premonition is... is it's too... It's, it's so... It's such a level of mediocrity that it has to be studied. Like, it's it's weird. Right. an interesting question. This is kind of tangential, but why do you think Western developers are so far ahead of Eastern in terms of graphics and intu intuitive design and I won't say mechanics, but I'll say intuitive interaction. Well, it's like we've kind of discussed, <clears throat> we talked about it before both on and off the podcast. It's that, you know, the Western developers are all about iteration, 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 iteration. Every game, no matter what, regardless of genre, is probably in some way iter iteration. iterative of something that came before it. Iteration. Iteration. In terms of iteration. Uh, graphics iteration. or sound iteration. or all this, you know, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Japanese are more content to explore concepts in terms of artistic concepts, like visual and mechanical, and come up with like different rules that only exist within those games. And maybe the rules don't work out so well, but... The act of pursuing that to them is the reward, mm -hmm. and seeing like where that corridor of thought ends, mm -hmm. if it ends. Whereas, like you said, I think it's just a pro. You know, the Japanese could be considered the the pinnacle, I guess, of of graphics makers. I don't know how to word that, but I think I think Japanese developers could be could would be the go-to 
area for graphics if they were focused on just iterating on how good can we make a game look regardless of how it plays. Mm. I think a lot of their folk I think a lot of focus on Japanese games right now is let's make it play interesting. Let's make it play well or play interesting. And then we'll make it look as interesting as we can. For some reason, I thought a lot of it had to do with um I guess you know, I wanted to say, say originally that I thought that I thought the Western market had to put up with a lot of negativity. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I guess I really would like to kind of see what gamers in Japan sound like on their message boards, and see what reviewers <clears throat> sound like. Just like their overall tone. Yeah, because. Yeah. GameTrailers.com is probably the place I go to get the quickest, best sense of what a game is like. It's like the most, in terms of... For me, at least, it's it's most in, syn- most in sync with what... I know, and I agree, and I think about games. <clears throat> you know, through watching their reviews, I've come to understand that whoever's writing their reviews, most of their staff, we agree on a lot of things. Right. So, bottom line is, I trust their reviews. And... That being said, there are. Have you watched any of them recently? I mean, within the past year. Uh, reviews. Yeah. The last review for them I watched was, um, gosh, I think God of War three. So. I guess March. what just bleeds through all of these reviews, whether it's like game trailers, although game trailers is particularly guilty of this, I think. Uh, One Up dot com, Giant Bomb, whatever you're talking about, there is like a level of criticism that is just not present in I don't know, I want to say most enthusiasts, but I guess all enthusiasts are this critical of games. It's the same way we talk about gamers and we're like, well, I'm kind of sick of the cynicism and blah 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 blah. It's like when a new trailer gets released. It's like when a new trailer gets released for a game. Uh I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be someone on the team of like Red Faction Armageddon putting out a trailer. <laughs> because you're like putting this trailer out there for everyone to see for the most critical, angry, <laughs> intelligent, yeah, in terms of how well they can pick things apart. Like they're knowledgeable. Yeah. Fan base in the world. I yeah. really think that the fans, like American fans and the American media and forums and everything, all that, the entire community of video gamers have, like, accelerated game development in the West. Because you can't put shit out anymore. Oh, right, yeah. You just can't do it. Yeah. Like, even your reveal trailers have to be almost perfect. Yeah. Because if they're not, there will be threads, videos, blog blog posts, like, tons tons of content Specifically directed at a, a really tiny, almost totally insignificant, shitty part, shitty aspect of your product. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I see that, like, criticism. And games that are coming from Japan are usually dismissed for technical reasons. Like, I can't like I can't think of a really good example uh I mean, I guess Nier is a good example. Playing about the controls. Or I saw people complaining about the way Nier moves, like his locomotion. Mm-hmm. And how roll is faster than his walk. <laughs> and people yeah. said, you know, like, haven't we got past that in video games yet? 
and or the fishing mechanic obviously that's the most obvious thing I can think of the fishing mechanic um, it's really interesting to me that the Western gaming community will sort of look at one aspect of a game and quickly assume that it represents have it basically the rest of the, the entirety of that game's experience yeah because with Western games that, that is, is typically, typically true. true. I don't, I don't know, know if, you, if, if you've noticed, noticed that, that, but like, if a Western, Western game, game is polished, it's polished. polished. I think it's the idea of like, yeah, I think it's the idea of like, man, if they can't get something as like simple as a fishing mini right. game correct, the rest of the how game how how shitty must the rest of the game be? But that's not true. No, because it's a different kind of game. It's a different type of game within the game. It's a, it's a different experience. It's the same way I heard someone arguing that. You know, the tank controls in Resident Evil 5 are stupid, and obviously that's an argument that people fucking talk about all the time, and it's getting old, but... You can direct an experience through controls, yeah. just like you can with a camera system. So yeah. if you want to make... A player feel something, like if you want to... Pull an emotion out of a player, you can do it with controls. I'm sure a lot of the fear... I mean, I know for a fact, but I'm saying I'm going to speak... No, I'm not going to say I'm sure. I know for a fact that a lot of the... the fear and panic that came out of some of the encounters in, in Resident Evil 4 came yeah. from the control scheme of you being like, oh, I can't get out of this situation the way I want to. For sure. Yeah. Sort, I mean, of, without em a doubt. sort of emulating the undoubtedly if you were in a similar situation, you would probably lose some of the you know, precision of your mobility. Or, yeah. You know, yeah. So yeah, and, like you were like, you always say, I, li I like the way you phrase it, it's not sometimes it's it's bad. But a lot of times, it's a choice. Yeah. It's not good or bad, it's a choice. Yeah, because you can't look at a game like Nier. Like, I understand that the team creating Nier may have been a pretty big team. But I fail... I, I can't believe that mistakes are made. I don't even know how to word this. It, it just really bothers me that people can't accept the fact that... Um, some of these problems are design choices. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not excusing, like, the poor infrastructure of most Japanese games or the poor menu systems. Yeah. Or, like, what's lost in translation or poor localization. It's not like Kavya sat down and went out of the way and go, How can we make this as esoteric and difficult as possible so as to piss everybody off? It just stinks that I, I guess... And I, I think guess, that's how some people think. No, yeah, no, that's, that's what I'm trying to say is it, it kind of stinks because... So much quality entertainment and quality art is being dismissed because mm -hmm. uh, enthusiasts, so-called enthusiasts, are yeah. so critical of the entire industry. It's just it's just really interesting to me that people who claim to be such fans of an industry and so enthusiastic about it are, are so critical about it and dismiss so much so easily. And I guess maybe that's a product of the fact that there's a thousand games coming out in a three-month time period. <laughs> yeah. And if that's, that's a, what it that's is... A little difficult. Let's games. Let's games. So I went back to, uh, I finally got back into the um, the DLC for Fallout 3, which I've actually had downloaded for some time because I bought it when it went on sale. 
with the intention of doing exactly what I'm doing now. And playing it when there's not a bunch of games coming out? Well, well, no, it's like I said, I feel like we just basically came to the... We, we've just hit the sand in the playground after falling off the front of the slide. Just like, boom, all right, now I guess that's... I don't know, I guess looking at summer... Now you collect yourself and go down the slide again. Blur? Like, I don't know if I'll ever play Blur, especially given the, perf the apparent sales performance of it or lack thereof. I'm just I'm just sad about Blur because one it's an amazing game and two, well one it's an amazing game two nobody's buying it and three it's a multiplayer only really game so yeah. if I do end up purchasing it down the line I don't really know if there's going to be an audience. I know for me. it's kind of one of those things where if you don't do it if you don't get in now when are you ever? Yeah. Uh, maybe one day I will eventually pick up Split Second and play it because that feels like a game I could probably get through in a weekend and say give it a thumbs up and go excellent. I too really want to play through that thing. Oh everything everything up. Right, right. But it, but you probably think that that lasts maybe a week. And after the week, you're probably, all right, I've, I've had my yeah. fill. That was a good game. Although I, I have a sequel. I do agree with you, but for some reason, I kind of think that it might have as much staying power as, like, a bad Ridge Racer. Split second? Yeah. It could. People the have, made, people have made comments that it is not entirely unlike a Ridge Racer mechanically. The drifting mechanic is, like, really good in the demo, at least. And yeah. There's different cars, so it may get better or worse from there. I could there. see it becoming like a... Well, I mean... I could see it becoming a burnout in that it's a series that when it hits like the third iteration... It's amazing. People are like, oh man, how good is this game? Could be. Because the first burnout is not great, but it had... You could play yeah. it and go, I could see where this is going. Two was pretty decent. Three was where it kind of hit its stride. Um, but for the most part, games that I was interested in playing... Winter, spring. I've, I've played most of the ones. I've played, I think, all the ones that I really wanted to. And I think the ones I missed, I, I might just have to miss, or I'll play it when I'm on my deathbed and I have nothing else to do. Um, God willing. But uh, I got back into to Fallout 3. <laughs> Somber. That game's really fucking good. That game's really, really. Really good. We did a top ten at the beginning of this podcast, and Fallout Three is probably number eleven. Yeah. I don't know what that is. I mean, it's it could be an intense desire not to interact with the real world, <laughs> which is troubling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Which is deeply troubling. To say the least. I bought the game. I went home and I'd been playing right. for eight hours. Fallout Three is a game that I have done that with. It's it's bad. I mean, it's like it I just don't see the I, I just don't see the the reward versus time. Or I'm sorry, the reward time spent ratio just doesn't do it for me. For it's that really game. high. It's really high. It does not. If you think if you think Assassin's Creed Two involves a lot of time, Fallout Three is tenfold. That's what I'm saying. There's and just not yeah. enough. Man. No, and that's what I'm saying. Like I'll go on a quest and it's like go get this thing out of this building, and it's 90 minutes until I've got it done. Right, and you, you're just like I don't, I can't. You know, it just seems empty and ridiculous to waste that much time in a video game. And I, I mean, I play, I'll play through, I play through Bullet Witch like six times, you know. But so it's, it's, it is, but it's a different experience. It's a totally different experience.
I've been playing Super Mario uh, Brothers 2 in an inordinate amount of time, which is to say longer than five minutes. Like a serious run at trying to get through that game. For some reason, when people talk, people have been talking about Galaxy 2, and every time a new Mario, like main Mario game comes out, inevitably there is that discussion of where in the great pantheon of Mario games does this sit in terms of quality? You know, like let's review. Galaxy 2 is the best Mario game ever, and then people just want to go, well, I liked Galaxy 1 better because of these things. Right. And it spirals out of control from there. And then all this discussion about, um, all of this discussion has started some discussion about uh, Sunshine and how good and or bad Sunshine is. And uh, as far as I was concerned up until about a week ago, the majority of Mario players did not like Sunshine at all. And I think it's because of... Well, I guess I don't know specifically, but I guess the basic reason is that it's, it's very un-Mario. It doesn't have all the familiar trappings of the Mushroom Kingdom and all of the characters that come with that and like familiar themes that have been redone for the 13th time. Right. Over and over and over right. and over. Well, I mean... So then I played... So finish that thought. I've been playing 2 because 2 is one of my favorite Mario games. I don't like very many of them because I'm... I'm just not conditioned to play Mario games. I don't know what it is. I'm not good at them. Or rather, I didn't put the time in as a kid because I was playing games like Castlevania 2 which is this big exploration thing. And, you know, I'm taking all this time into Fallout 3, so no wonder. But I liked 2 a lot because 2 was so different from the first one and weird. Anything that's, like, weird like that and novel, I guess my brain is attracted to it for that reason alone to start with. So people talking about Sunshine, I don't have Sunshine, I don't have a GameCube, so I played the other game that's, like, the freak Mario game of the series. I happen to like the second one. I really like, you know, when I first heard it, I really quickly wanted to attack it as, as something really stupid because I reacted the same way that you did, where it's like, well, what are you expecting out of a Mario game? It's uh, inherently childish endeavor. Yeah. It's a childish thing in a childish thing. It's a Mario game in video game world. So, I mean... Yeah. You're doing something childish with childish technology. I, I don't know. So it seemed to me like she was just complaining for no real reason and just to complain to complain and sort of taking up that whole maturity. There needs to be maturity in this game. But the more I listened, or I listened to it a few times, and I think I came to understand that she didn't really mean that. I think what she meant is, and she kind of she kind of says it better and, and addresses it a little better as she goes on, is that there's a certain there is a certain kidifying of Mario going on. Mm-hmm. Like I understand that Mario was never necessarily mature. No. But if you take the original Mario for example, I mean it was really simple graphically. Right. But conceptually there's nothing necessarily childish about it. You know, no. you're a New York plumber who's stuck in a weird kingdom. It's just surreal, but there's yeah. nothing inherently childish about it. No, and in fact, I mean, it's it's basically just like an Arthurian legend. A big dragon steals a princess and, and he in, goes to save her. And in fact, yeah, and in fact, there's a princess, and you're you're a man saving her, so that implies some sort of relationship. I mean, it doesn't necessarily imply sex as a reward, but it implies but in a, way a concept it does. that is not for children. Sure. Yeah. I mean, to me, it does. Even as a kid, I understood that. I was like, he's probably gonna bang her. 
Right? Yeah, there's just that. Why else like, would you run through all these kingdoms? There's that tongue in cheek thing. Of She's like, the only girl yeah. in the kingdom. When you're watching, yeah, it's like when you're watching a kid, uh, or watching a kid, when you're watching a movie as a little kid, um, when you're watching The Last Crusade at the age of nine, and the German doctor says, oh, Indy, and they bow down out of the bottom of the scene. You right. know what they're doing. Exactly. At the bottom there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, aesthetically, I mean, if you think about it, there's bricks, pipes. Sure, there's a blue sky and plants, and they look sort of childish, but there's nothing inherently childish about the, the design of the game. Mm -hmm. Mario 2 gets more surreal. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Amer no, we mean, obviously, we mean Mario, American Mario 2. American Mario 2 gets more surreal. Yeah. And uh, Not necessarily, I mean, by virtue of it be occurring in a dream. In the fiction. Sure. But I still wouldn't say that there's anything too childish about this game. In fact, this game is more bizarre and scary and frightening in a lot of ways than Mario One before. Sure. I mean, I mean, what do you what do you want to talk about? The fact that you go into uh, the sub world, yeah, <laughs> open a door to another reality. Um, the enemies themselves are like hooded figures with no real bodies but masks. <laughs> You're not even sure like what exists under the hood. Under the mask, right. Um, it could be nothing, which is frightening in and of itself. <laughs> um, you walk into a giant bird's mouth at the end of every level. Yeah. Um, there's something else really psychotic. Oh, the masks that guard the keys are psychotic. Yeah. There's just a lot they of things. They chase you. That... Like, it's a pretty aggressive thing. Sure. And, they, you know, thunder cracks right before they attack you. It's just... Yeah. It's a pretty dark and abstract game. And I, I don't necessarily... I mean, the colors say that it's for ch for children. But it sort of does that but thing that like a lot what, of Nintendo what games Nintendo did. game has subtlety in the colors. Yeah, really. there's exactly. That's a, that's what I mean. I mean, there's there's it's pretty much what all Nintendo games did at the time, which was appeal to children and adults. Yeah. Where if adults took the time to think about exactly what was going on at any given time in the game, mm -hmm. they'd understand that what they're doing is fucking psychotic. <laughs> right. And right. more a psychedelic trip than anything right. else. And as Mario progressed, I think it remained kind of psychotic and dreamlike and sort of out there and surreal until it got to Mario 64. And I think Nintendo started moving in the direction of, we need to... I don't know if they were thinking, we need to get children. We need to basically, like, reap a new audience for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. So we need to appeal to children with this game. Yeah. So that for the next 10 years, they're invested in the Mario universe. Um, for a while, I thought that that's what they were trying to do by kidifying Mario. But do you agree or disagree with me? Because I haven't yet found a person who agrees with me that Mario started to get a little childish when it got to Nintendo 64 and Mario 64. The characters that he was surrounding himself with just seemed to talk a little... I mean, I guess it was because text was introduced and you got a little bit more of a voice um, for the characters in there. But the characters that he was meeting in Mario 64... They just it, they lost their sort of surreal edge, and basically just it looked like I was watching. I don't know, like the levels, disparate as they were, looked like I could have been watching sort of like Sesame Street shorts, or just really I, I don't know. They were just so. It does. There's a lot in the aesthetic. Bland. There's a lot in the aesthetic of that game that's sort of kitty, like even the I remember um, like your life, the little life yeah. indicator goes through like the rainbow colors mm. as it ticks down. Yeah. And for some reason, I mean, that's a small thing, but it's kind of a kiddie thing. Yeah, it really is. And 
Um, I didn't play a lot of 64, but I mean, I, I probably played it more than most of the other Mario titles I played with the exception of like Sunshine and, and 2. Yeah, and I guess like you introduced the... It's Kitty, but it's like Kitty by way of almost like a circus mentality of like... You know, like in 64, you can launch him out of a cannon. Uh-huh. And like that sort of act is like... It's attributed with the circus, right? Sure. And it's sort of a funny like... It's like a funny, like, something a kid would laugh at. Like, an adult probably right. isn't really going to laugh at someone getting launched out of a cannon. Right. Not the same way a kid would, right? Well, that's that's a, that's actually a really good point. That's what I'm trying to say. In Mario 2, you picked a potion out of the ground, threw it on the ground, and it sprouted <laughs> it like a door into another world. reality. Yeah. <laughs> where everything was dark, shadowed. And backwards. And backwards. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in Mario 64, you shoot yourself out of a cannon. Yeah, and well, like, there's like but, but a de-evolution de of concept, like the conception behind Mario. Like and there's nothing interesting going on there. You, uh, you have the thing like you know before the technology the characters didn't really speak, right? They only really sp they spoke on the cartoon, which is I think a lot of people watch. So you had like the, you had the Captain Lou Albano, or you had the voice of Mario in the cartoon who was still sort of like a hey I'm a, a plumber human. hey uh, hey like. Luigi, what are we gonna get out of this mess? You sure, know, like, yeah. and you go to, oh, ha, wah, ha. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like, it's pretty childish, like, turn there. And the only reason that I can, the only reason that I can understand why they would, sort of, um, make him sound that way was to appeal to a younger audience to basically reinvest themselves mm -hmm. in a new generation of gamers. It's, it could be the reason for the proliferation of the sports titles. To appeal to an older audience, like Mario Golf, Maybe. Mario Tennis, Mario, d d d d d you know, all that, because I think those, by definition of being grounded in a real-world sport, are probably less, a little less kiddie, because adults play those sports. Right. You know. So I mean, the thing about Mario Galaxy One was to me, or I'm sorry, let me let me go back. So after Mario 64, a game that I really hated, Mario Sunshine came out, and to me, it really felt like they were kind of returning to. Not really the original Mario aesthetic, but like a Mario 2. You know, Mario Sunshine to me in a lot of ways is like the odd man out of the series, just like Definitely. 2 is. It's it's weird. They introduce new concepts and new mechanics that really don't mean anything outside of the game. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things that just never occur or even mentioned again in the history and the fiction of Mario. <laughs> right, right, right. There's characters that don't exist outside of the world. It's just like a really insular experience, right? Right. So... I happen to really like that really insular experience. Well, because I think it's more about, like, you could say 2 and Sunshine are not necessarily... I mean, it's like people say that a Mario experience involves the setting in which the game takes place. Well, to me, the Mario experience is about the the mechanics. Right? Okay. I, I, I'd say. I mean, I yeah, I I understand that there are. I don't disagree with that. Yeah, I, I understand that there are graphical trappings that denote a Mario game, but it's like, can't why can't you look at two and sunshine? It's just like, it's these characters just in a new setting, right? Like I don't understand why that's such a humongous crime, and it's even weirder because well, it's weird because Galaxy's like in a new setting, right? I don't know. I haven't played either of them. I've just watched videos and stuff. The thing is, Galaxy is in a new setting, but it's it's so childish, man. It's fucking ridiculous.
there's nothing inherently grown up about Mario's Sunshine. I mean, don't get yeah. me wrong. No. But it's definitely a step towards, I guess, what you would consider a more adult feel than Mario 64. And then it's just like they reverted back to the childishness. If you played Galaxy, you would probably be offended by it. I mean, I really <laughs> was. Because there's like a real... Nintendo's like message, the message that they're trying to send to the consumer is just really at, od at odds with itself. It's like, they create this game, Mario Galaxy, with some of the most complex, interesting mechanics ever introduced. And Mario Galaxy 2 has new mechanics and almost every level is something novel and new and interesting. And it, that sort of creativity can really only be appreciated in my eyes by someone who's been uh, involved in the industry and invested in the industry since they were young, so they probably played Mario 1, 2, 3, Sunshine, Super 64, all that shit. They probably have an understanding of Mario and have an appreciation for him. That's why they can appreciate the mechanics that are being introduced to them. But at the same time, in my eyes, they're like shitting on the shitting. history of Mario as like a surreal sort of dreamlike, mm -hmm. bizarre excursion into art. Because... Right, it's more a child's television show. Galaxy, especially Galaxy 1 and 2. They're more of a children's television show than almost any game that I can even think of. Right. If the, the games could be released with different characters um, and sort of like a subtly different art style and, and people would seriously su to suggest that they would be uh, to suggest that they would be addressing an adult audience with different characters would be sort of laughable is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's it's really weird to me. It's a really weird situation. So in that way, I, I kind of understand what she was trying to say, especially when she said, you know, like, why is there even any sort of semblance of a story? If there's going to be a story in my eyes, it better be totally fucking surreal and make no sense. played Hydera. Yeah. <laughs> That's a game. It is a game. Yeah. Really cool indie 2D shmup that's been in development for three years. Basically by one guy and another guy who makes the music for it. It's like Radius. Well, it's, it's basically like Radius, despite the fact that he references several games like Space Mambo and R-Type and pretty much every 2D shmup um, in the credits for the game. But it's, it's basically like a really, really, really well done indie game. 2D shmup. And I mean it's really well done. There's an amount of... The first thing you said when you played it was that there was a... Looks like a lot of time was spent on the game. Yeah. It's a lot of time spent game. for something that's free. Exactly. Um, it's just a really interesting really polished game if you like shmups. Check it out. Well, it's interesting. Well, the, the one thing I want to note is that the beginning of that game where it says the game's free for philosophy reasons. I'm really curious to know what his, re what, what his philosophy reasons are for making it free. I don't know. I mean, I can only speculate, but I don't know. It's a good question. It's just an interesting thing to put in there. But he also says that if you want to pay for it, check yeah. out his website. I mean, I can I can speculate up and down about why why someone would do that, but all I have to really say about the game is that it's really good. And if this is the sort of thing that one person can make, yeah, that right now, yeah, um, I probably will never be at. Uh, well, I'll probably never basically run out of shmups to play. Yeah. Which is a, a really comforting thing to come to understand. 
because for a while I was pretty concerned that the genre was going to die out and I was going to be unable to continue loving them into my old age, but... And then I also played Final Fantasy XIII. Oh, that game. Final Fantasy XIII is a really good game. I think. Yeah. It, uh... It's like I told you, the graphics and the style... Everything in that game is so fucking polished. And I haven't... Stopped... In a game. And rotated the camera around. To look at a vista. And felt the way I felt. Since Halo 1. And that's like a really big compliment for me because I hold that game up on such a high uh, standard. I don't know. Did, did were you impressed with the graphics when you saw them or no? Um, no, I was very impressed with the graphics. Like you said, you had it when you when you sort of panned it around. Um, you had it at a certain angle. Not that any particular angle looked worse, but like when you compose it, like when you compose the elements in the screen in a certain way, like. It looks like a target render, uh huh. You know, where it's like the game will look like, will look kind of like this, yeah. and then it's like, well, actually, we managed managed to make it look like this. Yeah. No, I was very impressed with it. They, um, the characters. Not only saw the two characters really in the game, uh, Vanilla and, and Saz, but they have that Japanese doll quality to mm -hmm. them, but without this, like the plasticky. Yeah like finish to them like they look sort of soft like real people yeah they're they like just, character caricatures but yeah they're caricatures in they're their design but they render but I, realistically yeah like I believe that they exist in a world somewhere like it's I kind could, of interesting I buy it. vision um, the only thing was like the, the environment geometry looked a little weird like kind of low mm. but I think it's one of those things where like when you put all the pieces together, you're like, "Wow, this is amazingly impressive mm -hmm. looking." We just they just cut corners in different areas, right? Than maybe some other developers would. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you say that about the geometry because, uh, well, first of all, this game has like zones in it. That, in particular, in in thirteen, there's uh, the second level that you enter is just the vestige, which is a giant sight of God. <laughs> so, okay. Right. Well, as if uh, that wasn't like already by the enough. second level, you're doing this. Yeah. That sounds great. Exactly, and that's sort of what like grabs you. It, it really was probably the most impressive level so far, and it was meant to be that. So it would grab you in and say, hey, this is this is what this game's going to offer from here on out. And basically you were like in some sort of neo-pagan tribal techno-temple. And it's, you know, like the geometry in this part of the game was absolutely surreal, man. I can't even explain it to you. Um... The amount of like arbitrary detail into these, like put into these walls, mm -hmm. in terms of shapes and lines and like pullouts and cutouts and just design for the sake of design, yeah, was so insanely intense. Man, I tried so hard to scrounge up a screenshot that I could show you, so you could be like, I 
refuse to believe that's not a render. <laughs> because it really did look that good. Um, the music is really, really zoned out too. It's really apt for the game. It's really low-key, especially for a Final Fantasy game. battle theme in my eyes is probably the best battle theme since Man with a Machine Gun, which was not even a real battle theme. Um, yeah, the game's just really intense, and there's some aspects of it that people don't like, but it's interesting that everything that other people dislike about it, I seem to like for one reason or another. I haven't really quite figured out why. I mean, to be honest, and you noticed it right away, the game is pretty much... Well, you basically have no control in the game. You have really no control over how your characters are leveling up. <laughs> you have very little control over where you're going. You have very little control over basically anything you do. Um, there's something about that that I like. And I'm not quite sure what it is. I guess it sort of does away with the... Uh, pretense of the other Final Fantasy games. The idea that you were under control in those games when obviously you really were never in, in any control. Yeah. I mean, you always were afforded the ability to walk around towns and talk to people that really didn't have a lot to say and you could never influence the story so it was all really pointless. It was really just a lot of masturbation, you know? It was masturbation for the writers and it was terrible for localization teams you have to imagine. Um, well, because, like I said, I, f I feel like they ended up removing a lot of, like, when you when, when you come down to brass tacks and you look at the game, like, really objectively, or look at role-playing games objectively, they cut out a lot of the bullshit, busy work that comes with playing RPGs. Right. Like, like you said, you go into a town, and now in a game like Fallout, I, I really get off on it, because I'm just so into the setting, and, and for that, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that Bethesda has chosen to... Give, it, give all of their NPC characters so much to say and, and, and do with the player character. But a lot of times, especially in like Final Fantasy or, or Japanese RPGs or, or RPGs inspired by Square RPGs, I guess, particularly, you'll go into a town and it's like, you know, go talk to, you know, so-and-so about the mission. But first you have to do a bunch of inane tasks of like talking to the right people in the right order. Right. And it's like, I really don't want to have to do it. Well, I mean, the really, really best way to describe it is that all those Japanese role-playing games throughout history, all they've ever been is uh, a drive to progress. Like, it's the, the, really the only reason you're playing the game is to progress. Like, in the PlayStation era, uh, you were playing to progress so you could see the next CG cutscene. Like, that was your reward. Right. And that's the, really the whole reason you were playing. You wanted to see the net, like especially Final Fantasy VII. I remember when that game came out. I was trying as hard as I could to see the next CG cutscene. That's all I was playing for. There was no YouTube. There wasn't really a way that I could really just easily watch these FMVs anywhere else. I was just remember. I remember sure. being so blown away by them and saying, "I'll do whatever it takes to get to the next one." Right, right, so right. So I can see what they have to show me. Right. Um, what sucked about that is, you know, Final Fantasy VII was structured like a typical JRPG, where in between 
the pivotal moments in the story and the moments that progress the actual story is a lot of shit that's unnecessary. Yeah. So a majority of the time that you spend playing the game is really just a lot of frustrating running around and, and actually kind of being kind of angry that you're not progressing since progression is really the only thing that you want to be doing. Right. So this game basically says we understand that. The only thing that you're going to want to be doing in a game like this is progressing in seeing the story that we have to show you. Whether or not the story is good, that's a different argument. Um, to me, this game is really just about progression. It's an exercise in progression. Yeah. Um, the way you level up, the crystarium, the crystarium, crystarium, whatever you mm -hmm. want to say, um, you really have no choice yeah. on how your characters evolve. I mean, not until very late in the game do you have any say in what role or what direction your characters are going to take. story is being relate or related to you in these parts. Most of the story and the history and the fiction of the game, if you want to learn about it, you have to go into the compendium or the data log to read about. Um, what's really going on and what they're really telling you about in the game as you progress is sort of the bare bones story of the characters. You're not quite sure how they're related to the world and everything until you go looking through that data log. And yeah. I really like that a lot. Because I already find myself skipping through about half <laughs> of the story-related cutscenes. Because I just don't care about certain aspects of the story. Right. But what's interesting is, because they're doled out in these little pieces, I can skip them and not miss a lot. Do you know right. what I'm saying? Yeah. Right. It's like if you skipped a giant cutscene in Final Fantasy VII, you would miss a huge part of it. Right. If you skipped this, if you skipped the scene in Final Fantasy VII where the we when the weapons were unleashed, yeah, and you just had no concept of what was going on during <laughs> yeah. that cutscene, and then you went into the map and there were those giant things flying around, yeah, you'd say to yourself, "I don't know what the fuck's happening." Yeah, but in this game, I've I've honestly skipped about half the cutscenes, and by just casually going to the data log to sort of. Uh, reference things I've been able to reinvest myself in the story really quickly and really easily and not only that but every time you load up the game while the game's loading there's a small summary of what's going on up to that point Oh, just text nice. it's just really great for me because I could give a fuck about the story yeah. it's so inconsequential and really means nothing to me the only parts in it that I'm interested in are the really abstract parts that are most likely not going to be defined anyway so if I play the game skipping through all the cutscenes and make the entire game an abstraction, I'll probably like it a lot more. <laughs> which is what I've been doing. What I've been, what I've been doing. A 
objectively, it's like intensely boring. You're watching a green bar go up and down. Yeah. And when the when the green bar gets low enough, you hit a button to make sure the green bar goes up again. It's like whack-a-mole. That's precisely it. But that's why I think this is more in interesting because if they gave you direct control over all the characters at that point, it would be boring. But since you're just switching classes, and I mean, since you're not in control of some of the characters, and since you can even just use the auto ability to just continually hit A, hit A, hit A, and have the computer select the most obvious thing. Yeah. You don't have to, it's not as objectively boring as you just suggested, because you're not forced to just look at the meters. In other words, right. if my other character is a health class, or a medic, um, I can switch to a medic paradigm, and not even really worry about healing, or having to watch my meter, or having to watch anyone's meter, just knowing he'll take care of it when it gets to be that situation. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And no, I didn't mean to insinuate that 13s looked boring. It looked amazingly uh, involved for as little as, for as little direct control as you seemingly have. Yeah. Or don't have, or whatever. I like everything, even the, even everything that's limiting, except for the way they toy with your parties for the first eight chapters of the game. Yeah. It's the only part that I don't really like. I, I don't like being limited to... I understand what they're doing is they're really trying to teach you the ins and outs of the paradigm system and trying to have you understand what roles actually do. But uh, it's just a little too restricting for me. And that's pretty much the same complaint that everyone's been voicing about it since the game came out. That while it's trying to teach you this, all these mechanics... It's severely limiting its enjoyability. I yeah. understand that now, as someone who played the game, but uh, yeah, as I was I, watching it, 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 I wasn't even playing, and it just sort of irritated me. Like it irritated me, not to the point where I would say I never want to play the game, because I do. I want to play it now more than ever, having watched that, or having watched you play it. But like there were fights that seemed particularly long, and it's like you know, if you just had a third person, right. This would go a lot better. Exactly, yeah. yeah. If I didn't know that in the 11th chapter I was going to basically be able to turn the game into like a free-roaming MMO where I got to do whatever I wanted. Like if I didn't at the end of this stick, yeah, I yeah. probably wouldn't be playing this. So I mean, I really... I understand a lot of the early reviewers of this game who basically quit by like the 6th chapter and were like, you know, I just don't want to play this anymore because it's one of the most limiting experiences I've ever had playing video games. Um... Yeah, if I didn't know that I was going to eventually be free, I wouldn't be toiling away at this shit, is basically the best way to put it. Because that's the only reason I'm playing right now, so that I can see what the battle system's like when it's fully unleashed.
So, the Electronic Entertainment Expo in Los Angeles, California. So, what games are you looking forward to? Deus Ex, Human Revolution. Definitely. A joint effort between you and I from the future. <laughs> some back end, some sort of... There's a weird vision that you can tell still remains sort of like pulsing behind this game. Mm-hmm. Like under the veneer of the of the futuristic tech war. Right. Uh, cyber thriller. Tell Shaddai. Yeah. Which yeah. is a game we haven't yeah. even talked about. This game probably looks really... Yeah. Probably is going to be really good. I mean, it's called El Shaddai Ascent of the Metatron. <laughs> and Metatron okay. is like one of the most interesting characters in history. The whole thing is like... Fictional or whole, otherwise. The name is like steeped in like Jewish mysticism. There's Vanquish, which I really want to play. The E3 trailer is already out for it, and it's over a week away. But I don't know what that game plays like, despite seeing the trailer, so I'm really interested in reading some I impressions. Want to say it play, I bet you it plays not unlike Wanted. Oh god, you're probably right. That's exactly what it fucking looks like. It looks like, like it looks like a mix between Wanted and Piano Three. Yeah. Then Red Faction Armageddon also just released a trailer, and it looks yeah. kind of shitty. It looks kind of like a step Space down. Marine. Dead Space Two. No, I don't really care. His mask is more angry. Yeah, his mask is more <laughs> angry. He's more angular and thin. <laughs> like I don't understand. Then uh, Lords of Shadow. Hey man, I think this game's gonna be terrible. I think it's going to be terrible. I thought the game was going to be okay until I saw screenshots of goblins, like like hobgoblins. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, Last Guardian. That's already a must-buy. I just want to see... New Zelda. I don't care. Frankly, I, I don't, I don't care. I'm I just not a Zelda it. person. I just want to see it. I just want to see it fail, actually. That's really all I want to see. Oh, jeez. I want to see it. XCOM. Never played any of the XCOM games. Me neither. This and one, I haven't hardly seen anything of this. This looks pretty interesting. Crisis 2. Eh, I'm really interested in that game, man. I think it's going to be good. Ever since ever since someone on the team said that they're going to try and outdo Halo in terms of like setting the standard for the next... Uh, setting the standard for console FPS. Oh, see, I didn't hear that. And if I had read that, I'd be like, oh. Uh, Knight's Contract. What about that? Yeah, man. I forget a lot of the Japanese games because really I feel like game. E3 is such a heavy, heavy Western thing. MGS Rising. I don't know Come anything on, about it. Well, Kojima's not making it. Great. It's going to uh, be on the 360. Great. Arkham Asylum 2. Disastrous is a, is a foot. That's what I'm game. interested to see the disaster. <laughs> I'm really confident that this game's going to be positive, I guess. Not E3. as good. Brink. God damn it, where's my brain been at? Brink. In all these games. Brink is pretty... I want to forget all these games, I don't have to play them. Yeah, I know. That's the problem. Did you watch any videos? It's a defense that video, right? your brain has. It looks basically just like Mirror's Edge with gunplay. That yeah, it even has that, like, futuristic. bleached future. Yeah. Future. Mirror's Edge 2. Because... You think so? You know that they're going to announce it. You think so? There's no way. I will bet my life <sighs> on Mirror's Edge 2. Enslaved. I'm not that interested in that game. Really? Have you played Heavenly Sword? No. All right. But that game has that oh. has that apocalyptic setting where it's like well after the apocalypse, and it's like. Have you played Heavenly Sword? No. Yeah. So hardware-wise, though, 3DS, yay or nay? I'm interested to see what the 3D is, but I don't know that. How well can you like? Can you do it via video? Can you take a video of someone playing it and? Right. It's still no, a mystery. people don't even know how it's going to do the 3D. Right. So then, and then Natal. Moving Natal. I mean, I'm interested in seeing both of those because it's been a year since they were both announced and it's like, 
Are we going to finally actually see some titles? I'm interested in seeing Natal. I think Natal is going to take over the world the same way that we did. It's just going to do the whole same thing that we talked about in like one of the first podcasts that we recorded where I was saying, I guarantee it's going to come with... I mean, there's going to be some games for it, but I guarantee it's going to come with a sort of apps system. Because, like, what they showed for Move was definitely more of a, like, gamer's thing. Yeah. It wouldn't be cool when your games are like this. Right, the fidelity of, like, the the movement is opens up so many more possibilities for games than the Natal ever could. That it's, like... Yeah, and it also also separates those systems. It makes those systems more different because ports that incorporate... The technology are impossible now. Oh, it's just depressing and upsetting. That's E3. To find out more about Podcast 1980X, please direct your web browser to www.podcast1980x.com. Thanks for listening.